Hello and welcome to Resolutions, a podcast about dispute resolution and prevention. For those of you tuning in for the first time, this podcast is a project by the ABA section of Dispute Resolution to increase the avenues where we can connect. One of four hosts serve as interlocutor, engaging in conversations with members of the dispute resolution community about topics of interest in the field. My name is Caroline Stauffer, and I am one of your hosts. I serve as the community chair for the Women in Dispute Resolution and co-chair the educational subcommittee of the international section. Today, I'm sitting down with Anne Goyer. Anne Goyer is a principal of Griffiths Goyer, a leading ADR provider since 1993, resolving a wide range of civil disputes, including class actions, commercial construction, employment, real estate, and other matters. Anne has resolved hundreds of civil disputes as a full-time special master, mediator, and arbitrator through prepared and productive negotiations. She is an ADR panelist for numerous appellate state and federal courts, serves as special master and referee for more than two dozen California superior courts, and acts as special master in national and statewide class actions. We welcome Anne in a conversation about ADR insights on strategy and minimizing risk through an article she wrote called Take Five. Welcome, Anne, and thank you for being here. Yes, and thank you, Caroline, for having me. This is very nice. I'm absolutely thrilled that you're here today and excited to explore the five steps you've developed. Your article essentially talks about navigating mediation and using a strategic roadmap. Can you share more about that? Of course, yeah. Um, Well, I believe that successful mediations require clear and purposeful action. And how does that translate? That translates into being well-prepared before you show up for mediation. So, you know, know your case. So that sounds basic, right? You know, you know your case. Well, knowing your case means, first of all, verify your client's role. Before, Before you show up for mediation, review the relevant documents. If there is a written contract, confirm that your clients for example, in a construction defect case, confirm that your clients actually performed a scope of work that comports with what the contract documents say. I had a mediation years ago, great attorney, by the way, shows up, has a very animated argument, um, you know, how can you try to blame the drywaller for the leaking windows. My guy was a drywaller. These settlement demands are ridiculous. Well, they go, they leave this, the settlement conference and um, they've done a little bit more work before they come back again. Well, lo and behold, his client, the drywaller, had actually installed all the windows because when he showed up to the construction site, the window installer wasn't there. His buddy was the general contractor. He says, don't worry about it. I'll take care of it. Well, all the windows leaked and since he the attorney had done such a great job saying this isn't a case that involves drywall this involves leaking windows kind of started off on a little uh, bit of a disadvantage he ended up doing fine in the end but i think he would have preferred to have that information about his client so 
verify your client's role in the dispute before they show up. And also in a personal injury case, do take a look at all the medical records, make sure there's no pre-existing um, injuries or some sort of treatment, that the treating doctor's diagnosis for whatever the condition is kind of line up with your theory in the case. Um, and also, you know, I had one case that was, again, a while ago, and the parties were getting fairly animated in the discussion. It was a uh, domestic partnership dispute. And the woman was making some claims, now look, I need help with support payment, blah, blah, blah. It wasn't within the family law, it was just their own private dispute. And quietly in the mediation room, her ex-partner turns to me and says, I don't think she knows that I know that she recently got married and she's not telling anybody. Well, when I went into the other room and talked to the woman and her attorney, the attorney almost fell on the floor, had no idea about this secret marriage. And it was a key argument. Oh. <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah. I can imagine. Oh, yeah. And it was it's embarrassing for the attorney because they're doing each of the attorneys doing the best job they have, but they didn't ask that crucial, you know, verifying questions to their clients on some of these key factual points. And it can just hurt your position in negotiations, makes you makes you seem a little less unprepared. So I would just say that would when you say know your case, I suggest verify your client's role. And along that line, also analyze the key evidence. So key evidence might be again the the medical records, but also are there is there significant information or significant data that's missing that you think would move things along so key evidence again personal injury would it be helpful to have an ime before the mediation or when you're looking at the contract documents are there key provisions in those documents not just about your client's role for example but is there an attorney fees provision for a prevailing party attorney fees provision is there any sort of uh, limitation of liability what are the insurance requirements? Were they followed? Just take a look at all the, the key documents before you come to mediation. And if there's specific documents that have a direct relevant impact on the settlement discussions, attach them or at least attach portions of them to the mediation brief. So the mediator has something to review, something substantive that he or she can discuss with the parties when they show up at mediation. Another thing about knowing your case is uh, avoid the empty chair at mediation. You make sure all the necessary people that need to be at the negotiating table are in the room. If you show up at a mediation and someone's missing, what's gonna happen inevitably is that a participant is probably gonna point to the absent party as the one who should be paying the freight on the file, or at least say that, look, you know, my contribution should be significantly less because you've got this party out here that is potentially the most liable party and I really shouldn't be paying the lion's share on anything. And also along the same line, um, what's, the, what's the viability of the parties? Is this a case that if you don't reach a settlement and it goes all the way to trial and there's a verdict, you're not going to be able to collect as a plaintiff? Do you have enough resources to be able to pursue the claim all the way through? And then, you know, are you sure that the, you can get reimbursed at the very end from the defense? And you should also, you know, understand the insurance picture. I did have a case uh, years ago that went up on appeal and the parties were questioning whether or not the plaintiff had coverage on the cross complaint and they had done 
had done several weeks of trial and no one had kind of ferreted out that information. Um, it ended up being very helpful to have that carrier rep show up at the appeal um, mediation, the appellate mediation, uh, to get the case resolved. But do understand the insurance picture, and I always feel that the parties should know who they're negotiating with. You should know who the insurance carriers, if there are insurance carriers involved, who are they? It's not uncommon in multi-party cases that there'll be one insurance company that might have multiple parties in the case. And even though they're keeping you know, their distances and separating the files, it does have an impact on the settlement negotiations. The initial steps appears to be very critical, according to the anecdotes you have given us. I mean, there's the possibility of being blindsided, but in summary, you could lose the mediation, losing faith in the process and it being quickly unraveled. So on your next step in terms of preparing your client, what are some things that you need to do? Well, I think when you prepare your client, the first thing you need to do is define the goals. What exactly is it that your client wants? And nowadays in civil litigation, um, you know, the, the main focus frequently is money, right? That's the main focus of a lot of the civil disputes. But oftentimes there's other goals and um, one of them could be timing, a key one could be timing. So you might have a situation where your client, look, I wanna fight this out, but if I can get this done by this certain date, I'll be able to sell this property to this buyer that says, you know, you have until this time to close this deal. Or there may be litigation going in um, another case and there's a pending, there's a pending hearing um, and they're waiting for the ruling. And if the ruling comes down in favor of your client, it's a good thing. But if it comes down against your client, it totally impacts this present case. And you know what? I don't want to take that risk. We need to try to get this date, this done by a certain date. You know, another one is you've got an ongoing relationship, whether it's a personal issue, a friendship, a family or it's a business relationship that even though you're in this conflict, you'd like to try to maintain that relationship and you see this drawn out battle as being something that's gonna cause irreversible damage, you know, talk to your client about the goals. There's goals that are that are, are there that may not be just about the money that's involved. There may be timing issues that will have a direct impact. And I know <laughs> also, I think you should always check in with your clients because you may have a client that shows up really angry and they're just gonna they're just gonna take this to the end and then all of a sudden the reality of litigation the the stress and the cost and they're just saying you know what you know they could even modify their goals before mediation and kind of have a shift just keep checking in do you ever find that clients have this deer in the headlights look during the mediation <laughs> not very often. I, the, you know, I, I, I will say this. I work with a very, I have great attorneys that I work with. And, um, but when you explain the mediation process to someone that's not used to it, they're, especially if it's someone that's not in a business setting, perhaps, it just alleviates, it, it reduces a lot of the stress and helps them realize, you know, look, this is informal. This is your opportunity to try to take control of your dispute and make a decision about an option other than trial, right? So I think that the key thing about explaining the process, I think the attorneys do a good job. I always reiterate it when we start a mediation, just to kind of bring the, make sure everyone's on the same playing field, get things rolling, kind of lower the stress. 
the big thing is, that you that the attorneys do need to take responsibility for, obviously, is the confidentiality. Um, different jurisdictions have different confidentiality uh, laws. And in California, the mediation confidentiality has undergone some changes in recent years. You now have to have your client, the attorney has to have the client sign off by statute saying that they um, their attorneys explained to them the confidentiality. And it applies, you know, if you if the client later decides, you know, I wasn't well represented in that mediation, I'm going to sue my attorney. The attorney then has this statement saying, you know, I explained this to you, you cannot use what we talked about in mediation to come after me for malpractice. So it's it's just especially since again different jurisdictions have different rules governing confidentiality it's really the, the attorneys just make sure they explain that to their clients i would say caroline that most attorneys are very very good at that um but i it's just an important point to raise to make sure you check that box and, and have that conversation with your client preferably before mediation and usually the mediators again will lay the ground rules and reiterate the confidentiality policy change was pretty recent. And so how frequently do these policies come and is this something to be constantly aware of? Yes, there have been changes um, and it's a, it's a separate seminar, <laughs> but <laughs> sure. there's a difference in confidentiality that applies towards settlement conferences and mediations. Settlement conferences, there's um, the, the protections that you have for confidential settlement discussions. Mediation, which settlement conferences technically under California law are um, in, are not voluntary. People are ordered to show up. And so the legislatures come in and say, you know, you can't order people to show up and then put this really strong confidentiality protection, mediation protection around those discussions, like force it on them. And in mediations, the parties are agreeing to do it voluntarily. So the court has, the, the legislature has distinguished the protections that surround those different kinds of discussions. Mediation is much stronger. Settlement discussions are still protected, but it doesn't have that the same depth. And I think we talked about this earlier in my settlement conferences when I work as a special master, the parties voluntarily enter into an agreement that they want the mediation protections to apply to their discussions. And you're the first practitioner I've met that is not just a mediator and arbitrator, but you're a special master as well. There appears to be some distinction between these roles. Well, a special master conducts, does case management, you streamline you streamline the resolution process, working with the courts, you're court appointed. And if you're a referee, you're just, you, you don't do the settlement discussions. You just do the case management side. So there's a special master, a referee, both court appointed. A mediator is not court appointed. So a mediator is, is technically not allowed to contact the court about the case. A special master can't, a mediator can't. That's just a distinction. Unless the parties agree otherwise, that's always the caveat. The parties can, can agree otherwise. So in terms of talking about how confidentiality has changed, there's been over the last, I don't know, 10 years, there's been changes in the, um, the di distinction between mediations and settlement conferences, and also the confidentiality, this, this, provi this new provision that attorneys do have to have their clients sign a form and, and the, the code goes so far as to lay out exactly what that form has to say. 
um, and they need to sign that before they show up for mediation. Thank you for clarifying and providing insight into these roles. For those who are listening in for the first time, this will be pretty important, I know for me, to be completely transparent. I have not heard of a special master before. So this is very interesting, understanding the different technical things that happen during mediation or how these contentious disputes can lead to different processes. We've gotten a little bit off topic about confidentiality and the different roles that practitioners can engage in, but I want to circle back about your step in engaging the mediator. What happens after selecting the mediator and what do those preliminary conversations look like? My process, we have a four-step process, right? And the first process we call straightforward goal setting. And what that is, you bring all the parties, well, the attorneys engage in an initial conference with the mediator. And I like to try to use the leverage. I, I try to leverage the talent, talent and experience of all the attorneys on the case in terms of how do we execute clear and purposeful action so that everyone's ready to engage in meaningful settlement discussions, right? So that may include, um, you know, what information do you need in order to engage in meaningful settlement discussions? What kind of time frame are you looking at? How do you see this laying out? How do you want to structure the whole mediation process? And one of the things you do look at during that, that point in time is the second step, we call it. It's um, streamlined data gathering. So again, what information do you need for meaningful settlement discussions? Because I started off as a special master, I'm very familiar with the whole process of, you know, getting massive amounts of documents, establishing a document depository, getting all the information. So whenever we do a mediation, we say, what documents do you need? We understand that you need a whole bunch for litigation, but what are the ones you want to prioritize before settlement discussions? Are there key depositions? Can the parties agree to a system that um, allows that information to be produced without voluminous discovery? Um, you're just trying to set common goals. You're not trying to necessarily build consensus at this point. You're establishing common goals and objectives. Attorneys tend to cringe when you talk about consensus building, right? <laughs> right. So, um, you know, and if there's one party that one of the key parties in the case is the target or whatever on the file, um, and they're claiming, you know, we there's we don't have any assets. We're not going to be able to pay any judgment. We're not going to be able to meaningfully participate in settlement discussions. Well, how do the parties want to deal with that? And what is the, the potential um, potentially liable party willing to do? There's circumstances where they might just say a declaration, establishing what their assets are. They may agree to show up from an informal meeting and just put all their financial documents on the table and people can go through them and read them and ask questions all under the mediation privilege. I mean, there's steps you can take if the parties want to do that kind of approach to minimizing the cost of getting ready for mediation. And um, the other one is, you know, simplified problem solving. Um, you know, use the right experts to define the claims, clarify issues, establish defenses. Um, you know, use the experts to come up with creative uh, resolutions to the problems other than just, you know, this, the settlement discussions being all about money without any sort of other opportunity. There are a lot of solutions that you can, you can negotiate that you cannot get in the court. You can come up with something creative in advance. And then I also talk about strategic conferences, conferencing, and that's something that I, um, 
I highly recommend. Once the parties kind of have laid out their common objectives, their common game plan at the front, as you get closer to mediation and the, the settlement briefs are exchanged, we set up one-on-one -on -one calls with each of the parties. And when I say parties, it can be just the attorneys. It could be the attorneys and their um, carrier. It can be attorneys and their clients. It's however the attorneys want to do it. But those strategic one-on-one -on -one conferences are incredibly beneficial. They allow the attorneys to discuss the goals, address obstacles, explore the resources that may be available to resolving a case. Um, a really good example of how successful this doing these one-on-one -on -one conferences in advance can be. I had a case where a homeowner loved their home, had been in there for years, and all of a sudden cracks just started showing up everywhere. I mean, all over the house. And he sued the developer and the general contractor. And all sorts of investigation came out, and they realized this is really was primarily a soils problem, that they hadn't properly prepared the pad, they hadn't properly done, built the foundation. And during all the strategic one-on-one -on -one conferences, these insurance issues were raised that involved soils exclusions in the policies. The carriers were not gonna pay significant amounts of money that would even come close to covering the cost of repairing this home because there was soils exclusions in the policies. And these one-on-one -on -one conferences allowed me to arrange um, discussions with coverage attorneys and have everybody challenge whatever they needed to challenge to see if, if this was really a, a strong position. They tested the waters. We show up the first day of the mediation and it was a one-day mediation. And by that time, the developer and the building contractor had realized, you know, if we take this case all the way to trial, we'll be bankrupt. And the homeowner had realized if we take this case all the way to trial, we'll have an empty verdict. And at the start of the mediation, the builder and the general contractor went into a separate room. They agreed to form an LLC to buy the house and back from the homeowner, repair it, and then resell the house. So they went into the negotiation room with this proposal. The homeowner who was already like, you know, realizing that there's gotta be another um, option had sure. looked into buying a house in the neighborhood the parties entered, an agree entered into an agreement. The defense bought the, the house back at a fair market value. The insurance carrier helped out to a small degree. And escrow closed on the sale of the house to the builder on the same day that the homeowner bought the neighbor's house. It was oh, a wow. double escrow. And the, that was within three months of the mediation, one day. And the next day after the escrow closed, the case was dismissed with prejudice never would have happened wow. but though that was because of the one-on-one -on -one strategic calls in advance all these issues were identified and there was a a game plan for getting it resolved if you had to give a guesstimate and you know you shared some of the results of what it, they litigated the matter how long do you think that time would have taken well if that it would have been I don't think they had a trial date yet, or if they had one, it had been vacated, but they were not imminently facing trial. There hadn't been a lot of discovery and all that done in the case. That's harder to answer these days because even though the courts are working overtime and even utilizing video conferencing, there's a backlog. And even once you get to court for trial, I'm being told that a four-week trial you should be counting anywhere from eight weeks maybe or longer 
I just so to answer that in these these days, I, I can't give you a good answer, but there are significant delays. And the courts are, you know, the courts are really trying to they're they're trying to keep all the attorneys. Um, they're doing lots of seminars, trying to keep everybody informed of what's going on. But there's a backlog. So how long that particular case was probably at least a year out from trial. Um, but if COVID had intervened, I, I don't sure. know. <laughs> indefinitely. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't, I'm not going to say indefinitely, but there would be a delay. It's interesting having this conversation because realistically, this is something that you would be discussing with the clients to prepare them for that journey. So when things start to get a little bit more complicated, do you think experts are needed and to what cost? I think you bring experts in when there's complex issues. Um, technical issues or multi-party issues in the case. And experts are another expense, but if they can simplify and clarify issues and risks, claims and defenses, they're worth it. So when you bring in an expert on a case, you, you it's not just to simplify and kind of also expand options. I'm trying to figure out the answer to your questions to what cost you would do. I, ha I had one case that ca the parties came in, it was a relatively small case. And they were arguing they were, it was over a, a real estate, right? And in the course of the initial call, we're setting them up. I asked them, what did you need in order to, what, what information do you need to have meaningful settlement discussions? And they kept going back and forth, back and forth on the value of the property. And I said, well, are you willing to look at Zillow and other sites and take the real estate estimates that they list? Are you willing to jointly retain an appraiser? And we went through all these different scenarios in the initial call. And the interesting thing is, is they ultimately agreed to hire a real estate appraiser and one, not three for different opinions, one. And when the appraiser came back with the one value, they said, okay, we're done. We don't need to hire you, Ann, but thank you. Thank you for helping us get this going. So wow. was that a cost savings? It was a cost savings all the way across the board, right? Sure. So if you yeah. have a very small case and you don't, you don't think you need an expert, that's fine. But if you have one that's involving a lot of money, or if there's a complex issue that, you know, one report from that expert that can be turned around a relatively short amount of time, why not? And when you're, when you're looking at you, you engaging the expert, you also should consider how are you going to, if you do engage an expert, how are you going to use the expert? So in construction defect cases, it's very common for plaintiff to do on, to, on how much it's going to cost to repair a project, right? So plaintiff will do a repair scope and cost and produce it to the defense. And the defense will do a reply repair scope, um, maybe even cost. And then the parties have joint expert meetings to see if they can um, reach agreements on certain areas. Sometimes they look and say, let's try to do a joint scope and then we'll get our own costing. Sometimes they say, no, we just, we're going to compromise on some issues, but we're going to maintain our own scope. But the great thing about having these experts come together is you define the areas you agree on, you define the areas that you disagree on, and you get a better picture of the settlement value of the case. And it kind of narrows that gap between the two sides. Are you going to use, are you going to retain one expert to maybe to look jointly among a whole group of people to look at particular issues in the case? Uh, we have a, a case here where the parties agreed to retain an expert who was this highly respected professor to see what geotechnical issues could possibly be causing all these cracks to happen all over this uh, shopping center. It was a very um, specific issue and um, it can just help 
break the log jam. If there's a, a very fi difficult financial transaction, the parties might want to have a single financial expert sit down and kind of untangle everything so the parties then have a better understanding of what the issues are and how they can reach a resolution. When you're also preparing for mediation, not only the pre preparation part, you know, how are you going to use your experts? Are you going to share things under the mediation privilege? So you can have some really open and honest dialogue, but on the day of mediation. So how are you going to use them on the day of mediation? And it, it's interesting because sometimes when, when um, experts show up and you'll have each side again, they do their differing views. One expert has one view, the other expert has a contrary view. All of a sudden that different voice, the decision maker that's sitting in the room and that different voice, whether it's the objectivity or the, the style of presentation, all of a sudden they can listen and absorb the points that the attorney was been, you know, arguing for all this time and didn't seem to get a response. Or, you know, at the end of the expert meeting, the decision makers look at each other and realize, wow, we're in this industry and we, we've hired these great experts and none of us can agree. What is a jury of lay people going to do with this? Are they going to look at sound science and make a decision? Are they just going to guy, you know, on just totally personal bias? Uh, you know, sometimes it's helpful for just decision makers to be in the room to just see who's a better presenter of the experts as well. But, but figuring that all out in advance before the mediation, it just, it's a strategic approach. And also it helps you define the value of the settlement and kind of where you're willing to go. And it also helps on that bat now we talked about, a best alternative to negotiated sure. agreement. It all comes into play. But again, that's something yeah. if you do it in advance of a mediation, you can have, I mean, you can take that opportunity to really make an impact on getting a case resolved. Um, so, and, and of course you bring up a very important key note and, and actually all of the conversation about strategy. And I think this really goes to the, the experience you have and, and how successful you have been in navigating these situations and providing that to us. So thank you so much for, for bringing this knowledge to the table. Um, and kind of segues into to the last step where you mentioned about developing a strategy in this process. Step five, the take five, yeah. Um, yeah, develop a settlement strategy. I mean, take some, take some time before the mediation to kind of outline or do a thumbprint of kind of where you're going in the settlement discussions. In um, construction defect cases where they're multi-party a lot of times there's these peripheral parties want to know, can we get out early? I mean, are we going to have to go all the way through, even though I was the guy that hung the shower curtain rings in the um, dormitories? Do I really have to go all the way through? Is there an exit strategy where I can leave this litigation early? Uh, will plaintiff agree to settle around parties that are not engaging in their view in good faith, what they call problem parties in a case, or have taken such a strong position that the parties don't think that they'll be able to reach a global? I mean, and what's the best timing for service of a settlement demand or settlement offer? Um, in cases involving insurance claims, oftentimes the carrier asks that any insurance, I'm sorry, any settlement demand be served four to six weeks before the settlement conference. Um, in a wrongful death case, they might serve a settlement demand 
you know, well in advance of the mediation, but the defense decides not to serve an offer because they want it. They want the party that's been injured um, or in terms of losing a loved one or what have you um, to tell their story before they put any money on the table to kind of, you know, put a, uh, have it come with a more human message than just doing a settlement offer and demand. You just kind of have to give it some thought on the timing of a settlement demand and a settlement offer. And then um, always confirm that there'll be decision makers there with settlement authority. And when you're doing that, do take a look, you know, who are the key players here? Are there any suspended corporations? If there are, how does that impact their, the entity's ability to enter into a settlement agreement? Uh, is there any bankrupt entity? Or even if there's a juvenile involved, there's a juvenile's interest. There's just legal steps that need to be taken before those particular entities can come to the table and engage in meaningful settlement discussions. And I always like this one. I always say to people, you know, try to be proactive. What, give some thought as to where, where, how you're gonna go from the start, right? Are you going to make an opening demand um, and you're gonna have it backed up with, you know, maybe it's a dollar figure of a million dollars and $500,000 is for these defects and $200,000 is for lost um, rent. And I mean, are you going to do an itemized demand? Um, is there going to be an itemized response? Sometimes that's the starting point on some of these discussions. Maybe it's um, maybe you figure out how you're going to move from offer to offer based on past negotiations with your opponent. Maybe you're you're going to use brackets if once you make two or three moves, the parties are still significantly far apart. You're now going okay. If we're this far apart this time, I think this is kind of what we need to do in order to create um, settlement discussions that are on the same playing field. Just figure out, just give some thoughts so that you're not completely reactive um, in the settlement discussions that you have your own game plan moving from offer to offer and so forth. Um, and I also suggest, again, um, considering potential settlement terms. I ask in my mediations, I ask one party to prepare a settlement agreement in advance, leaving out all the financial terms just so that the parties kind of can see up front, like, okay, what issues are going to come up and how can we deal with them in advance? Um, you know, there, is there going to be a mutual release? Is there going to be a confidentiality clause? Are they going to demand a non-disparagement clause? And if so, what are the legal ramifications of those? Because there's been a lot of um, legal uh, decisions on non-disparagement clauses in the last couple of years. Um, payment security or arbitration provisions, just kind of Think of that in advance. And another benefit of, of having a settlement in, in agreement in advance is that you've got all the players in one spot. If everyone's had a chance to kind of look over and agree to the terms, you can close the deal that day if you do reach an agreement, which allows the defense to close their file quicker, quicker and allows the uh, plaintiffs to get payment turned around um, within a short amount of time relative, however the parties decide on payment terms. But I also think that, you know, if, if, you, if you prepare the settlement agreement, a draft version, you also have an opportunity to kind of, again, set the table for how you close the deal. I, I don't see a downside in it. So if, I, I feel if I'm asking as a mediator, um, it actually helps the parties and it helps bring closure in an efficient and effective way to a dispute. I love the part where we talked about the stakeholders being in the room that are experts. And I'm bringing that up again because I remembered a thought of 
reactive evaluation, what you were talking about, it's fascinating when you have a person in there and they can listen to that one person, but they cannot listen to anybody else. And essentially that's what it is, is you basically devaluate anybody that you've been dealing with. So because you have maybe these feelings towards them, whatever they may be. But once you have somebody who's completely neutral, and this is where kind of the mediator comes in, but more so effective when you do have an expert because they have a certain power. They, they have the knowledge that they've been waiting for in terms of the parties have been waiting for this knowledge and, and wanting to gain more insight. And you can see that behavior where they might change and shift even physically um in in the role so or in the in the dispute so this is caroline there's been there's been brain studies done that sometimes you can have the same message delivered and you don't even have to have an adverse relationship with someone it could be your attorney who's been advising you this but you can have the same message delivered but in a new voice and it actually sparks different areas in your brain so people, they're actually listening to something, even though they've had the message, they're not really absorbing it. It's kind of an interesting, they do all these studies and it's just interesting to learn about them, but bringing Absolutely. in that other voice can actually literally spark, spark your brain. So yeah, a different pathway, yeah. right? So interesting. And, and that's kind of why we do this work is really to spark opportunity. And part of that is kind of, facilitating a voice that they haven't heard before to resolve their issues. So I think it's all of this is is why we do it, right? To help others see what they couldn't see before. And in terms of this process of knowing your case, being proactive, having the strategy, what are the key takeaways that you would say is important in this process that you've written up? Communicate keep the channels of communication open and open. And when I say channels of communication, I mean with your client and knowledge of the file, with your opposing counsel to the point you can, definitely with your mediator. Engage your mediator. Um, so, you know, it's a great way to get, um, to have movement on a file, on a dispute without, it's a minimal risk really. Um, if you can get, use your mediators. I, I wanna say buffer in preparing, but that, that that's might not might not be the right um, might not be the right word, but it, the mediators can really help you have those real time communications that help move the process forward. And, and again, be prepared. I mean, just be prepared on on just this is a shot for us to maximize the outcome mm -hmm. of this process. Take advantage of it by being prepared and and doing your homework. And I'm not saying you know. It's not the same as preparing for trial. I'm not saying you have to button down every point, but just kind of take an, uh, uh, know your know your file and um, be figure out your strategy. Like. Well, you have to be flexible, yeah, but I, I do think it helps to be proactive and kind of have a game plan in place before you show up and do your homework and make sure that everybody that needs to be at that table is at that table and that they have the information they need to engage in meaningful settlement discussions. I agree. And and I want to thank you so much for being here today and, and talking to us about this. It's been a real pleasure, Anne. So thank you. This has been wonderful, Caroline, and I very much appreciate the invitation. Thank you so much.